Hello, my name is Ran. Welcome to the Flow Artists Podcast. This week's guest is Elizabeth Bell, and we recorded this during the fabulous Yoga Fest retreat at Lord Summer's Camp over Melbourne Cup weekend. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you because Elizabeth is a person with a unique perspective of the world, and she actively works to empower herself and the people around her. In this conversation, we talk about some of the seminal teachers she's trained with. We discuss her background in art, including her experiences life modeling and her work as the naked lecturer. Finally, we talk about her project, The Ovarian Temple. Before we start the conversation, though, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe to the Flow Artist Podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. It will really help us get the word out there. Okay, on with the conversation. This is our second attempt and I'm very glad that we got the chance to do this because I think there's uh, plenty of things that we'd all like to say and I feel that you have lived and are living an extraordinary life of uh, creativity and healing and empowering yourself and other people. So perhaps we could start at the beginning and you could tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up in your family life. Oh, thanks, Rain. Ran. Ran. <laughs> hey. <laughs> ah, dick, never. Right, cut, 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 cut. <laughs> thanks, Ran. <laughs> thanks, Joe. Oh, thanks, Elizabeth. I'm really honoured that you want to talk to me about my, uh, my processes. So let's see, I am from Melbourne and I'm from a family, I realise, of healers and makers. So five of the seven of us are either doctors or physios or working with drug people or nurses and so on and and I'm, I'm a yogi. And we all grow food and we all um, make gardens and we all make things and I feel really honoured to come from that kind of a, a background. And so when you were a little kid, was that what your house was like? A yes. lot of growing and making and yes, creativity? Yes. One of my earliest ecstatic memories is of a, an autumn evening behind the lemon tree and the sun was just, it had set and it was frosty and we'd all been working in the garden all day. I would have been five. Yeah, I, I feel ecstasy with that sort of tingling in the toes and the smell of autumn and gardening. And just that connection to nature. Mm. Yeah. Did much. you always get along with your siblings? Oh, you know, it, it comes and goes. As I guess it does. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it always does, yeah. yeah. No, we, we were a unit and worked together as a team. When did you first discover yoga? When did I first discover yoga? What was your first experience? The first experience, well, it depends how you interpret yoga as if it is asana and the word yoga or the feeling of the numinous and the body. So that sense of the dynamic energy and the divine sense of the body in time and space and moving and the, the awe of being. I reckon that's part of yoga. Absolutely. Mm. And so were they kind of formative nature experiences in the garden when you first had those experiences? I would experiences? say so. I would say so. And also we... Um, did a lot of working bees building ski lodges up at Mount Buller and Mount Hotham as uh, in the 70s and 60s and things. And that was 
nature, mm. much yeah. less organised mm. than it is today up in those ski resorts. So that's the energetic meaning of yoga. When was your first asana, asana class? My first asana class was on a grassy hill out of Sydney with some Iyengar people. And I did down face dog and I thought, oh, I'm home, I'm home. And did you say, is this yoga? Or did they tell you? Oh, we knew. We, yeah. we knew. Yeah. I mean, I knew that they were yogi people because they just announced it. And did you have any sort of um, movement practice before that, like dance or just any other type of... No, no. interestingly. I've always been a reader and, well, except for gardening, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But no, we didn't do any of that kind of thing as... We were a sort of a, a gardening group of readers, my family. Yep, yep. So like your physical practice was that getting out in nature and yeah. moving things and yeah. getting getting dirty with yeah. your hands and the mulch and the... Yeah, yeah nice. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've always been a chop wood, carry water kind of exerciser. Mm -hmm. And my father, for his midlife crisis, instead of getting a blonde and a red car, he got a bicycle. <laughs> and he rode, <laughs> he rode from Kew to the children's hospital and back every day. Which is a good hike. Definitely. Mm. And he was riding until the age of 75 to work mm. on his bike. And still working full-time at a hospital at the age of 75? Virtually. Yeah. Yeah. So your other work-life stream is us. Mm. And when did you move from reading and gardening into creating as an artistic practice? There were always the... When there was the gardening, there was the mud. And when there's the mud, there's the hands. And when there's the hands, there's the little figurines. So they were impermanent. They would come out of the ground and then they'd sort of sit on the edge of the garden while you were gardening <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, there's no real evidence of these because they just went back into the soil. I guess just the progression into your work today. Well, that's right. That's right. So I'd, perhaps you could explain the figurines a little bit. Yeah, sure. The figurines feature... Well, the figurines have... I've, like I said, I've been making them forever. And after a while, I started making them in clay and firing them formally. But they've always been the subtext, as has my writing been. So a Arian Temple and what I write, I've kept away from academia and art school. They've been separate practices. <laughs> because I had a sense that of the postmodern um, bang of squashing any juice out of these kinds of endeavours. So I intuitively protected myself uh, from the, the, the special things. So the figurines hold my resolve and anyone that has one of my figurines I encourage them to hold their resolve and the resolve is to do with empowerment and direction of self along positive lines and in particular it relates to the meditation that I've written called Ovarian Temple which is for the female sexual organs. Would you like to explain the wonders of Ovarian Temple in a bit more detail for us? Yeah sure. So one day I was doing a Shavasana, which is the relaxation at the end of a class. There were no chaps in there. And we were relaxing the limbs and the arms and the head and the eyes. 
and then I found myself shining, asking the women to take a lamp and clean and relax the sexual organs, so the fallopian tubes and the ovaries and the womb and scrubbing it all clean. And everyone just said, oh, that was amazing. And as time passed, it turned into something of substance and it has become a thing of its own. I've detached it completely from yoga at, from the advice of my esteemed teachers um, so that it can be broader than yoga, but it still works as a yogic principle. So the internal tour of the female body Mm. Is this something you explored in your own meditation just for yourself? Or is it just something that unfolded in that class at that moment? Well, interestingly, my art has always been... It's been this strange kind of thread where I was a life model for many years. And some time ago, I was in Amsterdam and I was working as a life model there. And I had my camera, because it was so fantastic just to photograph things in Amsterdam in the 70s, uh, early 80s. Let's sneak it in. <laughs> <laughs> and one day I was modelling, and I stepped back, and I was looking at this ancient chair, and this ancient dais, and this ancient wall, and this ancient building, and I photographed where I had been. And in that moment I realised the... Uh, significance of being both the active and the passive, of being the subject and the object, of being the observer and the observed. And this began, I reckon, the, probably the beginning of, of ovarian temple in a way. I mean, apart from what happens when you're a model, which is moving energy around, and always, you know, when you have the normal sort of process of, of your menstrual cycle and things of how I, anyway, manage my any aches and the discomfort of it, it it's that that sort of theory of of pain as something over there which is not to de it's a kind of a detachment from the pain you would know about pain a little bit yep yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so not just taking drugs but just to see it as a natural um process of being female Mm. So I would self-soothe, put it that way, self-soothe, and self-manage the energy, shifting the energy without moving the body. And so this is how you stayed comfortable. This is how I stayed com comfortable for a long time as a model. Um, and and then, I guess that's quite a yogic practice, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. 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 Well, a, a comfortable and relaxed position. And were you doing yoga at the same time as you were doing no, the life modeling? So no. this is something you intuitively came to within yes, your body. Yes, that's right. That's right. So that's two things about yoga that, you know, I, I found without finding yoga. No one had to tell you. No, no one had to tell me. So the modeling and this observation of absence in time became a master's dissertation. I went to art school and did nothing about it. I dropped everything. Came to art school and did your regular, you know, kind of art school thing. Then I left and continued all the while modeling and all the while uh, photographing my absence and just ruminating on being. And that became performance piece with surveillance cameras on my body and the easels 
and the drawing materials and the dais and me on a bank of television monitors and these cameras on my body feeding into the monitors. So anyone who looked at my naked form saw themselves, was... saw themselves looking. And so they had to make the decision, do I look and act or do I just look? So it posed a question for the audience. And here is a nude. Is this a model? Is this an artist? I was the artist because I'd constructed it all. And behind me were all the paintings in the 19th century Salon of Art in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And I spoke. I spoke. So did you prepare text beforehand? Yes, I certainly did. So what did you say? Oh, I just talked about looking and I talked about feeling of being and I talked about the silence and I talked about agency and yeah and then there's another part of that work where I took that text and laid it in the shape of the patterns of say where my foot had been <coughs> and that was on transparent paper on top of a photograph of my foot where my foot had been so it was kind of layers of layers of imprints yes layers of of expression yeah so then after that i had ambitions of doing it in front of all the major nudes in the world but tired of it and instead got a position being a naked lecturer and i started off completely clothed and the students came and i had my dais there and i slowly and carefully undressed and all the while explaining that I was going to teach from the middle and that they were all going to be part of the circle and work would be turned in rather than always be on the outside. So it became an inclusive activity. And the, um, yeah, and before they knew it, their teacher was naked before their very eyes, telling them <laughs> a few, you know, like, this and that about drawing. And I remember you saying that your process was very much that they weren't allowed to take their eyes off you the entire time. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, so a drawing meditation that's process. Right. That's right. And that, in fact, was when I came to Melbourne. And that's when I uh, started to study with Eugenie. And so I was doing yoga every day with her. I'd been doing it intermittently in Sydney with Maggie Nimmo, um, but not really seriously. Did you see yourself... Well, you obviously saw yourself as an artist and as an art teacher then. Mm, mm. Did you ever have a shift where you saw yourself primarily as a yoga teacher rather than an artist, or have they always been one and the same? They've always been one and the same, absolutely. Although I suppose there's a slight... They're meshed. They're they're interwoven. You've always had both practices yeah, and they've yes. always fed each other. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Would you like to fill us in a bit about the different teachers you've had along your journey? Because you've had some really seminal teachers. I have. I've been very lucky. I've studied... Well, Eugenie and Maggie Nimmo are both extraordinarily empowered women mm. and wise 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 women and I don't know how it happens I mean I suppose you're led to what is interesting to you and I'm interested in female actualization and shrugging off the the trappings of oppression I don't know about Maggie Nimmo but Eugenie definitely does that with a twinkle in her eye and a yes. light heart <laughs> yes indeed and a steel resolve mm. yes fierce wonderful 
And the other significant female teacher I've had is, is um, Diane Long, who was a student of Vanda Scaravelli. And Vanda, it was, she, she was a, a rich Italian aristocrat, I believe, and dancer. And she had Mr. Iyengar as her summertime yoga teacher. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and she found him to be too rigid and too, I don't know exactly, but... but the, I've had a feeling, not ever studied with her myself, obviously, mm. but her approach is very much about finding inner freedom and yes. inner expression. Yes, yes. Yeah, and also she has a, an allegorical way and her f- images and the the book is brief, Awakening the Spine. It, it isn't a laboured text, very dance-like. And so she had three students, one of them, what's her name, Sabatini? She's written an amazingly brief but poetic book on breath that I love. Diane hasn't written a book but has done one-to-one students and that's what I did with her in a ninth floor in a tower in Rome and white voile curtains and a white room and the curtains would blow a bit and you'd see Rome in the distance and oh it was just fantastic. That would speak to your artistic soul. (laughs) (laughs) It did, it did, it did. Yeah. And you've also studied with the Mohans. Oh well I still am. They will be I think forever. And the Mohans I like a lot because, and I mean, I suppose Iyengar and, and Vanda are from the secular, from the household yogi stream. Um, Eugenie is more the renunciate path, the, the monk path. Uh, I like the householder yogi. It, it allows you to be, you know, full of foibles <laughs> <laughs> and full of, full of creative juice and I suppose... Yeah, it's richer for me. I obviously have a long way to go. And do you feel like your teaching style today is more reflective of the training you've done with the Mohans? Yes, definitely. What, definitely. Would, I, what would I expect if I came to one of your classes? You would expect a class that was uh, very breath-led. So nothing happens until there's an awareness of the breath. So you begin an inhalation, then you move. You finish the movement, then you finish the breath. And you pause and you collect yourself and the exhalation comes and then the movement follows. So there is no rajasic, the result of jumping around and doing crushingly fast and furious vinyasa. It's very measured. It's very measured. And and so one of the side effects I'm finding is that there is an even firing of the muscle all the way through because you will do chaturanga, for example, over the whole of a long exhalation. And it's tough. It appears to be slow and measured, but it is really... No, it takes a lot of strength mm. to takes, move with grace and it, control. That's right, that's right. And so there's no collapse if you collapse, it's an indication that you're not sort of strong enough to be able to... You need a different variation. Well, you need to go not quite so far. And I did that gentle class of yours the other night, and I did find myself that just moving slowly. It, it was called a gentle class, but I actually found some of it quite strong and mm. um, quite challenging. So, mm. no, it was No, great. It, it is. I mean, I, I made the... I didn't do the, the twist variation mm-hmm. of that. That, those sequences but yeah it is it is mm. it is strong and you can make it as strong as you want mm. Mm. 
And I'm actually, I've just found over the weekend that, you know, some poses that you may be doing, you know, you may have done many times, they're just cued just a little bit differently. They can be that much stronger and mm. more intense. So it's a whole new sensation. Well, I've discovered that you can do a lot of poses without using any muscles. Mm-hmm. And that equals ruining your joints. Mm. Well, there is some debate about that. Yeah. If you are loading your joint mm. in a slow, controlled, not intense way, mm. some research does say that that's actually how we strengthen our connective tissues. Oh, okay. Because that's how those yeah, connective yeah. tissues get stronger, being progressively loaded over time. Right. You definitely don't want to slam yourself into loading a joint. Yeah. Because I'm talking yin and yang here. Yeah. So in a yin pose, you might set up the architecture of a shape so that Mm. you can be reasonably passive. Yeah. And gently stress those connective tissues. Yeah. And I tend to not focus on the bit that connects like directly a muscle to a bone. Mm. I'd more focus on a broader area of sensation. Mm. I'm not a hyperflexible person. So I don't have to be as careful of my joints as say someone who had a pre-existing pelvic instability issue or something like that yes but i've definitely felt my joints feel happier Mm. and stronger Mm. doing this practice so Mm. i think there's i think there's room for both Mm. definitely in my body i felt benefit interesting well i was thinking more of of traditional standing poses Mm. you can do standing poses without Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Just like you dumping can... your body into the shape. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. That, I, I think can... that that's what I was meaning. Yeah, or like a plank pose where you're just letting yeah. it all sag down in the yeah. middle. Yeah. 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 yeah, or warrior two where you can have a jelly buttock. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm all about firing up those glutes. <laughs> 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 yeah, oh, no, I love, I love the body and the way – and it – I mean, I love yoga and the body and the movement that comes. And it relates back, I think, to the time as a, as a model as well. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully connected. You would definitely have a different awareness of your body. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. When you were doing those life modeling sessions, mm. was your brain, how much of it was in the moment and how much of it was your time just to let your mind explore and wander? Oh, well, how can you ever answer that? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't yesterday either, so... (laughs) People were... People would always like to have me as a model because they always said, you look like you're really thinking deeply about something. You know, there was not a vacancy. I mean, it was probably partly to do with my face anyway. Such a thoughtful face. (laughs) (laughs) No vacant eyes here. Furrowed brow. (laughs) A certain amount of it, like breath, really comes in to it. You can't help but be in the moment with it. Unless, of course, you fall asleep because you're so beautifully stretched out on a cow. (laughs) (laughs) And then you just feel a hand sort of lift your wrist up and put it back because it slid off your thigh. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I mean, a variety of things happen. Mm. I can't say that I was in the transcendent yogic state of bliss the whole time. Oh, you're human. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I loved modelling. I really loved it. And one day you just had enough? I was doing it up until the old Melbourne Jail Chapel, which is where I used to teach. And that was amazing. Do you know that building? I know the old Melbourne Jail. Well, they've got a chapel and it's part of RMIT. Yes. And it's 
big arched windows and a huge, huge space with a gallery. And I'm sure Ned Kelly and every other poor bastard had their last Yeah, because that's why they have a chapel attached to a jail. That's correct, what it's for. Correct, and there's a, there's a closed-off doorway that leads through to the jail. And so it was a space really resonant with energy. And so I was the teacher, but I had a model's budget. So I used to put on tableau and have these extraordinary... Oh, because you weren't paying a model. Correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I could have two or three or whatever I wanted. And so we would have these extraordinary, sometimes musical events. Oh, wow. Mm. Fabulous. Yeah, so I'd have people playing music and people drawing and the lights low. And it was a very popular class. But at a certain point, they reconsecrated the church. They took it back. It's, again, a sacred space. <laughs> and I looked at the other opportunities of where I could do this thing. And I thought, oh, you know what? I've had enough. Yeah, I've done that. It was hard work. And Ovarian Temple was beginning to take ferment and um, I was teaching more yoga, so I shifted completely away from that. And that was turn of the century, turn of the millennium. (laughs) You must encounter amazing aspects of people when you've encouraged them to tour their own wombs and ovaries. Have you had any interesting encounters with Ovarian Temple? Obviously not to violate anyone's privacy, but you've done so many ceremonies. I have a lot of people who are really grateful um, just to have had that opportunity to go there. And I've had a few longed-for pregnancies. Oh, that's nice. Not my own, of course, but people who have come because they want to get pregnant, and they have. And uh, one lady, you know, was determined to... I mean, you know, it's all coincidence. I make no claims. I don't make promises. Come and do this and you'll get pregnant. No, no. Or come and do this and it will cure your ovarian cysts. Or come and do this and it will fix your endometriosis. I emphatically say I make no claims. It's your connection that makes the work happen inside your body. Mm. It might be that emotional connection that's the the most important aspect, I guess. Yeah, and I think that um, and the breath connection, the breath connection, and the visualization. Mm-hmm. Like so many ailments, stress is not helpful in terms of fertility or any hormone related issues. Yeah, so that's anything right. that can kind of settle someone in their bodies and Mm. calm their minds Mm. is a helpful Mm. practice Mm. and also with it i use the technique from yoga nidra of the resolve so it's like the sankalpa the sankalpa so it's and it's specifically related to the needs of your reproductive creative system because i see them as very much linked female sexuality and female creativity I mean, after all, women build babies in their bodies. What can be more creative than that? Mm. I chose not to have babies myself. Well, sounds like you've made many babies. <laughs> yeah. Or, I don't know, facilitated. <laughs> and, yeah, so uh, I decided not to do that in my early 30s. The situations were... I just had this epiphany, or at least I had. it was almost like I looked... 30 years into the future and I thought I can't do that I can't I'm too I can't my path lies elsewhere that was actually and it was at that moment that I was accepted 
that I wrote my proposal to do the masters about the naked lecturing and the model and the view and that so on. So to find myself doing more work about the the you know actualization of women, it all seems to connect. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. But the thing that's exciting now is building the giant mirror drawings of the female form in which to put your resolve. So is that something that you build for people or people build for themselves? I build for people at this point. And so do they kind of tell you their story and you turn it into an artwork or how does that process work? Well, it started off for me, it started off with a mirror that I broke and I didn't know that this was coming because up until then I'd just been making the small palm-sized Neolithic looking goddess figures and uh, so this mirror broke it was a beautiful art deco mirror and I went and got a bit of board and I thought I'm going to put it back together I just can't throw this is too beautiful to throw away yeah and actually I broke it at Donvale and I put it under the couch because I couldn't bear to throw it away then I left Donvale after David died and I still couldn't throw this mirror out so it stayed in a storage unit for three years like a box of broken mirror yeah a box of broken mirror and um, it had many opportunities to go but I just couldn't and then I thought today's the day so I went and got a bit of board and I'll I'm going to try and put it back together as this oval but instead came this extraordinary female form she's about um, well she's as big as the board so she's 1.2 meters by 60 and can you put pictures on podcasts? Yeah, we can put links. Yeah, it's the most. I've never made anything quite like her. Like my eyes were sticking out on stalks. It's like, <laughs> who are you? It was like I'd been visited by the great divine feminine, and Athena, the goddess Athena, who mm. is one of my personal heroes. Mm. And um, so I started making more. I, I found bits of broken mirror. And I, what I loved was that mirrors are so to do with uh, reflecting yourself back and vanity and seven years of bad luck and all of that. And and I'd broken this mirror and didn't have, I don't think I had seven years bad luck, but anyway, I put her back together. And now I break mirror with impunity. <laughs> Gusto. Yeah. I look it in the eye and say, come on, bad luck idea. Yeah. And, and transform it into stuff. So one of the pieces was a commission and I was given a broken mirror and a broken plate. And the female form that came out of that is really wonderful. You'll be able to see that as well since we can put so many links to pictures. <laughs> and now people ask me to make them. They give me their broken glass and mirrors and Beautiful. Yeah, I have a studio in in, uh, my mother's garden, which is where I, yeah, make and where a a lot of them live and people come and look at them and say, I'll take that. But the most important thing is that they hold resolves. They hold your I am orgasmic or I am in perfect health or I'm fertile or I flow with the transitions of life. Whatever the resolve is to with being female, I'm powerful and they're to go in people's gardens and they go in people's so you're gardens. literally planting those seeds yeah. in someone's home ground well metaphorically Metaphor- yeah not burying <laughs> the mirror <laughs> so they go in a dark spot i always caution people that you need to have something beautiful in front of it 
Otherwise, you'll double your ugliness. <laughs> <laughs> they don't inherently make a garden beautiful because they'll mm-hmm. reflect back whatever is in front of them. So that's something that I'm doing a lot of at the moment. And the one that I'm doing now is as big as this table. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah, the mermaid. I wouldn't normally make a mermaid because I don't agree with them particularly. That oh. sort of fantasy of a mermaid. Well, I saw this interesting documentary on a burlesque troupe mm-hmm. because the mystery of the mermaid is what happens when she wants to get sexy. There's a tail in the way. Exactly. And so this burlesque dancer did an upside down mermaid with a woman's body and legs and just a big fish head. Oh, and yes, this like, dear. you know, saucy little fish oh, upside down mermaid burlesque show. Oh, that's so great. And the same fabulous burlesque dancer also did a burrito striptease because it was her favourite lunch. So she had this <laughs> giant burrito outfit and just like took off the foil and then unwrapped this big you know, oh. tortilla thing she'd made for herself. Oh, that's so great. Do you know the dance of the seven veils? Yes. Do you know which veil comes off first? The punani. Yes. <laughs> Not many people know that. Yeah. I think there's a Tom Robbins book That's that it's it. in. Yeah. yeah. Skinny legs and all. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a marvellous book, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that book. Ursula Le Guin, you know, the American mm-hmm. writer, she posted something the other week about, and it's classic because all, all people do as they get older, you know, that old youth is wasted on the young. And, and she said, she said, all young things are profoundly beautiful because of hormones it doesn't mean that they have beautiful character or a beautiful heart or a beautiful soul, but the hormones They're make just them pulsing full of young life. Yeah, that's right. And the unfortunate thing for women in this culture and patriarchy in general is that once a woman has passed her her use by date, she's invisible, unwanted. And the idea of the crone, I think, is incredibly unhelpful Mm. for the era from the beginning of menopause until say 70 when there is still an enormous amount of vitality experience and freedom for a woman hopefully she's accumulated some wealth and is um done child the child business and so it's the time for a woman to really do important work So the next phase of ovarian temple is going to be for this era of womanhood. And I think that the crone, you know, it's so cruel as an image. And I think that women are terrified to become a crone. Like the wisdom part of it is lost somehow. Do you think that women are afraid of being seen as like old and wacky and eccentric so they don't follow their passions or they don't want to... I'm sure they don't want to be invisible, but how do you think that that stereotype is still playing on women's minds? Or do you think it's more something that we get from the media and women don't see themselves like that at all? Well, I can't speak for all women. That's true. (laughs) I can't, I can't, because there will always be people, women who think for themselves and who have followed an intelligent path of self-examination and inner strengthening. I think... That if when, when a woman is beautiful or hormonally beautiful, let's say, say up until like 30, and then after that it all starts to get a bit crinkly and women start to get a little bit anxious and there'll always be a younger one and, and 
this fear that men will always go for the younger one. And that's, you know, I mean, that's a, a, a biological I mean, it's not helped by movies where and the leading man is in course. his 60s and the woman's in her 20s. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, and this is all part of the problem of patriarchy, let's face it. And so women, it, you know, it's our responsibility to evolve ourselves, freeing of the shackles of being appreciated only for the external beauty and for being able to make you know, to breed. There's so much more. There's so much more. There's a lot of work to be done if we're going to survive on this earth. There is a lot of work to be done. And it's not work. It's our inner work for ourselves and making the changes that is going to make everything sustainable. And my view with Ovarian Temple is that, that men are harmoniously integrated. It's not a way of pushing men away it's actually men will get a much better time (laughs) with a woman who is is experienced with ovarian temple because she i mean apart from the emotional development there's also a lot of physical you know work with with the kite as i call it the diamond the subtle movement of relaxing and engaging the pelvic floor and i encourage the women to practice on their visitors (laughs) (laughs) so you know and and because it is about uh, developing your own control and connection and robustness and vitality and juiciness how is a man not going to but be delighted absolutely Yes, so it's very man friendly. <laughs> Everyone can enjoy the benefits of an ovarian Everyone temple. Everyone can enjoy the benefits. <laughs> Have you found that the age group that you're really excited about exploring now have already been coming to your ovarian temple sessions? I get a wide range of ages. Do you know who I really want to do it for? Is girls. I feel the same about teaching yoga to teenage girls. Maidens, maidens, Mm -hmm. before menstruation. I feel like there's so much bullshit that's just aimed at teenage girls about their bodies and about their self-worth that to be able to tap into something else that's not just filtered through media and Mm. advertising Mm. and... Mm. Just a really twisted view of body image. Do you know that's so not powerful? New. It's not new. I remember back in the 70s, Dolly magazine. And I read Dolly magazine and I thought, I was 13. Holy shit, this is evil. And I slammed it shut. And I, I thought, I cannot engage with this. I cannot. And I put it on the shelf and I've never really been there ever since. I think that was the beginning of... Well, it was a continuation. It was the beginning of my sort of path of, I'm going to find my own way. Well, I think so. I think so. Yeah. And and, and the crushed velvet silk, orange silk lined coat I found in the opportunity shop. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I'm not going to have my style dictated to me by some trashy magazine when there's treasures like this out there. You're right. You're right. And also, I've been a voluptuous creature f- for my whole life. So I was never feeling s- sort of... And I refused to... Well, maybe I didn't have the desire or the willpower to restrict my food because we were all vegetable growers and 
cooks and it was one of the great joys, the family coming together and eating and eating stuff that came from the garden and preserving fruit and, yeah. So that kind of abundance is part of my makeup. Mm, and definitely part of your art. Yes, definitely, yeah. So the whole thing is about, um, hopefully, generosity and spreading the love. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. So this is a completely left-field question. Oh. But every now and again, I see naked yoga workshops or I read an article from someone who's been to one. Mm. And I never even feel like doing yoga naked on my own, not for any kind of discomfort with my own body, but just I don't like the sensation of like naked skin squishing on my mat and sliding around. Mm. Have you had any naked yoga experience or what do you think about it is that something that speaks to you i think we're very like i don't know when did when did humans start covering themselves fig leaves yeah, from, yeah. <laughs> original and, sin well yeah and then on a cold day in a possum cloak mm. but um i think we're really quite removed from our flesh i love sleeping outside which is by the by like I will sleep on the ground in my mosquito net little paradise wherever possible and wake up to the stars or go to sleep to the stars wake up with the sun and I feel that we live in our little houses and we separate ourselves very much from nature I also think that yoga has become very commodified and I think that that is a commodification Mm -hmm. do you think it's just another gimmick I think I think so but uh, who knows? I've not been. I've not been. No, no. I've not been called to go. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, you know, my, my bits would swing too much in the way. I mean, I like I like to be sort of corseted by my clothes to a certain extent. Well, even if I've just been, like, in my underpants or something, it's quite an unpleasant sound and feeling to have that stickiness of your sweaty back kind of... Yeah. Squishing on your mat. <laughs> I think logistically for me as well, it might be <laughs> unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're all decided again, we're not going to naked yeah, yoga. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not particularly keen to go to naked yoga. But, uh, I'm a bit French like that. Well, because French women will never go out in their tracksuits and without combing their hair because they feel that, that um, it's an affront to the... Um, quaffed and groomed world i tend to put on lipstick mind you i haven't put on lipstick for our interview (laughs) well you still are sporting a beautiful pink silk scarf (laughs) and a dapper quaff quaff (laughs) yeah there's a hairpin in there (laughs) that's just to keep the locks out of the way (laughs) the uncut locks Mm, so even dressing down has its own glamour to it (laughs) you're very kind Say someone walked off the street into your class, first class I've ever experienced of yours, what's the one thing you'd really like them to take away? And that could just be a normal yoga class or your ovarian temple. Connection to their own breath. Pranayama is the fourth limb Mm -hmm. of yoga. Mm -hmm. Third is asana. Second, niyama. Mm-hmm. Or Yama, one of the other. I get those two mixed up. Yama, as well. Yama, then Yama. Yama and Niyama, yeah. Yep, yep. I was never good at counting back. <laughs> um, and there is a lot of preparation necessary for the mind and the body before you 
get going. But as the limbs go all the way up, they become, you leave the ordinary world and you, you know, with the withdrawal of the senses and the meditation and samadhi at the end. But um, without the breath, nothing works. And the mind has just gallops all over the place. I don't know if you noticed in the class, but when you do a vinyasa like that, where I stop talking and just say, you know the pattern, do it, mm-hmm. how it's possible to be mindful, to stick to letting the breath lead you. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you let the mind lead or you go into some kind of automatic overdrive, it loses all its potency mm-hmm. And you become distracted. It's the time when you might injure yourself. It's mm-hmm. when you lose your stability and you lose mm-hmm. your focus. And so I'm totally convinced that peacefulness and steadiness and breath are the things, the guiding principles for me. And so that's that inner awareness that you're on the right path yes. in your practice. Yeah, yeah, I think very much. My pick of the week is my year with helen which is a documentary about helen clark the former prime minister of new zealand and her bid to become secretary general of the united nations uh, i won't give it away but it is a heartbreaking tale so <laughs> yeah you should definitely watch it it's a really good um documentary about a you know another very strong powerful woman so mm. yeah definitely worth, worth a watch what's the word crippled by patriarchy Yes. conspired against by yes. the, the men's room, mm-hmm. the men's club. Absolutely, yeah, mm. definitely worth a watch. Give thanks for Angela Merkel. I'm still in the Neolithic section of the Louvre Museum with the goddess figurines. Would yes. you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Um, well, every time I go to Paris, I make a beeline for that. It is full of extraordinary... You can feel the hands of the women that made these objects. They're small palm-sized, votive figurines. Yeah, my pick of the week is a colour story, which is one of my favourite apps. It's a photo editing app, so you can do a lot of the things that you can do on Photoshop, like crop an image or um, adjust the saturation or the colour balance or the contrast. Made by a couple of sisters, Elsie and Emma, who write the Beautiful Mess blog, which is kind of a creative lifestyle blog. And it's just so fun. You can use lots of different color filters and it just adds this little extra dimension. I already use my phone kind of like a visual diary. When I see something that catches Mm. my eye, Mm. I can take a picture. And sometimes the picture comes out a little bit more dull than the original thing that caught your eye. So it's just fun to be able to kind of tweak the colors a little bit so it looks like it does in your imagination. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Sounds great. I use my phone like a visual diary as well. I, I can't, every now and then I've, my, my rolly goes, hello. <laughs> you can still get two and a quarter square film. Take me out. I knew Diane Arbus once. <laughs> but I don't. I just use this. Oh, no. I've got a page of where I put my phone snaps on the web page, my web page, I put my favourite pictures. I suppose I should do it more on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Instagram's an interesting one. <laughs> it is an interesting one. Sometimes a lovely creative outlet, sometimes just a dopamine mind game mm. that makes me look at my phone every 10 minutes. <laughs> mm, mm. 
I'm always amazed at how many people respond. I, I have a thing for f- photographing and filming bees, and one of I've I've had various um, past life memories, and I've not been a, a princess or anything. I've been a bee, and I've been a not horse. even a queen bee. No, not mm. a queen bee. No, I was a worker bee, and and I really have a distinct memory of staggering out of a flower with my little legs full of covered in pollen and this flower and the blossom. It's a very strong memory. Yeah, right. Wow. Oh. Mm. And the other one was of a horse. I was walking down the corridor and David was behind me and I had a ponytail. My hair was, was swinging and I was walking along and I heard him put his hand in his pocket and rustle a paper bag. And I swung around with my equine head. <laughs> and the thought was... Carrots or sugar cubes? <laughs> well, I think that's a nice note to leave it on. <laughs> oh, thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. And that was our conversation with the incredible Elizabeth Bell. What a life she is living. Elizabeth hosts the Ovarian Temple often, so you should definitely make your way to one of those events. I'll leave her website address in the show notes so you can look her up. Joe and I would just love it if you reached out to us. You can email us at podcast at flowartist.com or you can visit our website at podcast.flowartist.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and SoundCloud, so just search for Flow Artist Podcast at any of those websites. Our music is by GoSoul and you can buy his music at gosoul.bandcamp.com. It's great. Thanks again for listening. Joe and I are completely honoured to have your attention. Big, big love. <laughs>